Welcome to another episode of Training Data, a podcast series from Cosmic Works. This is the first part of a two-part series focusing on the founding of SpaceNet and our current activities. It includes uh, participation from some of our partners, including AWS and Intel AI and Maxar. It's important to note that at the, since the time of this recording, uh, we've had another partner join Capella Space. So enjoy the show. Hi, this is Ryan, and welcome to another episode of Training Underscore Data, arguably the world's most rich and compelling data science podcast. I'm really excited. Uh, we've been circling this pod for a while, and it's almost to the point where I wasn't certain it was going to happen, but it, it is, and we're here, and we're recording today. And what I'm, what I'm referring to is the meeting of the minds, all the SpaceNet partners, well, almost all the SpaceNet partners in one room and the rest of us connected virtually. And to take a step back, so anyone who's listened to this podcast, who's read uh, any of our blogs in like the last three years, you're familiar with our work on SpaceNet. And more specifically, you're probably familiar with it at a challenge level. Just in this podcast alone, we've talked about results from SpaceNet 3 and SpaceNet 4. And we recently released a pod talking about our upcoming challenge, uh, SpaceNet 5. Uh, which launches in September, and you can find it on spacenet.ai as well as the Top Coder webpage for more information to register. Yet, we haven't really taken a moment to explain how and why Spacenet got started uh, in the first place and what all the different partners are doing and have done uh, through Spacenet. And in order to provide an accurate uh, and compelling retelling, we've called the heads of the five families. And in our case, we're, we're missing one. Uh, and we'll be talking with each person today specifically uh, to get into all the details. So without further ado, I'd like to inter start with everyone in the studio first. So first, let me inter introduce uh, one of the co-founders, uh, Todd Bacasto. He's the Senior Director of Strategic Growth and Emerging Technologies at Maxar. He serves as the co-chair of the SpaceNet Advisory Council. He and his colleague, Tony Frazier, helped uh, start, start SpaceNet with myself, Todd Stavish and Lisa Porter back in July in 2016. Todd, welcome to the show. This is a long time coming. Thanks, Ryan. It's really great to be here. Uh, first off, just you and the Cosmic Works team have done a terrific job um, with the Training Data podcast. Uh, I'm a huge fan, uh, and so it's really cool to have the chance to be on the show and to talk a little bit more about the project. To share a bit of, of background on my company, Maxar is an innovator in Earth intelligence and space infrastructure. Uh, we serve government and commercial customers, uh, helping them to monitor, understand, and navigate our changing planet. We help them uh, deliver global broadband communications by providing satellites and ground stations, as well as um, helping customers explore and advance the use of space. Second, a big welcome to Joe Flasher. Uh, Joe's been at AWS and actually with us uh, since the beginning of SpaceNet as well. Uh, and he's also been critical in making sure that the SpaceNet data set is available through the AWS Public Data Program. Joe, good to see you. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, I'm super glad to, to be here, glad to be around the table. Um, so you mentioned um, the Open Data uh, Program um, and the Public Data Set Program. So SpaceNet's been available uh, through that from the beginning. Um, that's uh, a program that I help oversee at Amazon Web Services. So we have a couple goals of that program that I think are probably worth bringing up here in the beginning. Um, we look to democratize access to data. We look to help groups develop new cloud-native techniques, formats, tools to work with data. 
Uh, we're also encouraging the development of new communities around data sets. Uh, SpaceNet meets all three of those goals, so it was a, it was a great fit for our program. Um, and uh, I also help support the disaster response team at AWS, uh, and I'm super excited uh, in a lot of the areas that uh, SpaceNet hel helps push on uh, sort of those disaster response-related uh, tasks as well. Well, it's awesome to have you in the studio, guys. And last but not least, uh, we have Alexei Bastidas with Intel AI. Uh, he's a data scientist there, and he's also one of the newest SpaceNet partners. Um, he's joining us uh, virtually today, and by the very nature of joining virtually, he is our designated survivor. Unlike Kiefer Sutherland, he will not be screaming into the microphone through the course of this podcast, so all of you listeners can just take back and relax. Uh, but without further ado, Alexei, thanks for joining today. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, yeah, excited to both be here and to be our designated survivor uh, at Intel. Uh, I think we're extremely excited to join the SpaceNet initiative. Uh, we consider you know geospatial imagery workloads paramount, not just for government and industrial customers, but also for humanitarian organizations and uh, really folks that are looking to provide aid to those that need it. Uh, we look forward to contributing to drive in their space. And you know, at Intel AI. Uh, Intel AI's product group, uh, of which I belong to, we're also extremely focused on research and engineering efforts on developing algorithms, particularly for this field of geospatial imagery, uh, as we see these workloads that's critical to our hardware in the future. Uh, so again, just really excited to be here and have a chance to talk to you. Well, this is excellent. And before we get into the story, why don't we just sort of level set and establish a baseline for, for all those listeners that may not be familiar with what SpaceNet is, and kind of how we're structured right now. So from the top, uh, SpaceNet is a, a nonprofit LLC dedicated to, as, as Joe and Todd and Alexei all hit on, accelerating open source computer vision applied research uh, for geospatial applications, namely in the area of foundational mapping. As a result, the primary features that we seek to extract from deep learning algorithms are things like building footprints and roads, things that you would expect to be uh, essential to any map that you would use. Uh, we've said this time and time again, you'll see this uh, in a lot of our presentations and blogs, but there are four central pillars to what we do. Number one, uh, and we'll be talking a lot about this today, is we develop, curate, and open source uh, labeled data, specifically from uh, high, very high resolution satellite imagery. Number two, we host public data science challenges uh, through TopCoder. And we then, number three, open source those winning uh, artificial intelligence models uh, through our GitHub repository. And number four, we then post detailed analysis of those results, establishing algorithmic baselines from each challenge with the goal of democratizing not only the data and the model, but then also the understanding of which models are optimal for which applications. Uh, to date, we've hosted, uh, and we are actually in the process now of hosting our fifth challenge, We've attracted hundreds of participants around the world. We've open sourced 18 algorithms, and we've developed one of the largest open sourced labeled geospatial data sets uh, in the world, downloaded in 81 countries. But then the question, right, that you got to ask is, how did we get here? And I, we actually hear this a lot when we're out and about at different conferences. And so to answer that, why don't we go back to a far simpler time where things were quiet, a simpler time known as the late 2015s. All right, so just to kind of time travel back to that period, all the growth far exceeds anything that, I, I'll speak for myself, that I certainly envisioned uh, 
uh, when we first started SpaceNet. And like a lot of data science projects, whether you're in geospatial or not, the origins of uh, SpaceNet started with the search uh, for data, specifically data that was built for machine learning models. I remember when we first started Cosmic way back in the beginning of 2015, we were really pumped about labeling our first data set. It was boats, for those of you that follow the blog. And we quickly realized, A, this is really hard. B, it's going to take forever to build real good data sets. And C, if we're really going to make a strong community around this type of work, we were going to have to do something drastically different than just doing a, cu a couple custom labeled data sets. And so, Todd, I know it's hard to remember back to this time period, but to set the stage, what was out there in late 2015 and 2016 in terms of data for geospatial applications? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. So when we were thinking about the project, um, and, you know, we were observing some broader trends um, in the in advancements in the computer vision space, particularly associated with ImageNet. And we were curious why there weren't more applications uh, for geospatial data, specifically satellite imagery, to take advantage of these type of algorithms. So we informally polled uh, computer vision researchers that we knew um, had some interest in satellite imagery. Um, you know, these are researchers in academia, government, and industry. And the you know the, the the main response was that it became clear that there was the limiting factor here was availability of the full resolution satellite imagery as well as um, labeled training data sets to enable this type of research. And so when we uh, started the project as part of um, Digital Globe, now today Maxar, uh, you know, we were looking at our, our 100 petabyte uh, satellite imagery archive and saying, well, wow, this is a, you know, this could be a great opportunity to help it advance uh, you know, technology and applications in the space. Yeah, and I mean, and it was something that even from the startup perspective, we saw a lot of companies coming in and saying, hey, I took this ImageNet model that was designed for cat det detection, and I'm trying to apply it to satellite imagery. And if we heard that one more time, we're like, there's got to be a better way. You know, on the other side, you know, there actually were a lot of data that were out there at the time, maybe not necessarily tuned for specific foundational mapping applications, so more, more common what we're used to seeing today in computer vision work. Joe, what was data was sort of available at that time through the public data set program? Yeah, so the public data set program, um, it's got a wide variety of data uh, from genomics data to sort of machine learning appropriate and natural language processing sort of data in this case. Um, but if we're talking about geospatial data, uh, the big two would have been Landsat 8 uh, and Sentinel-2, right? So these are 10 to 30 meter uh, resolution satellites. Uh, they're, good for, they're good for a lot of things. They're fantastic for a lot of things, right? And they're also uh, publicly available and they have been for quite some time. Um, but they're not good for this class of project, right? So they're good for big sort of land cover things. They're not necessarily good for uh, a lot of buildings. Um, we also work with groups like Humanitarian Open Street Map Team, who runs Open Aerial Map, uh, which uh, helps groups get access, access to a lot of data like drone imagery. Um, but these are a lot of sort of one-offs, right? So somebody will go out and collect a drone imagery over a certain area, uh, and then they look to make it available publicly. Um, but it's not, um, this certainly isn't touching on any of the labels, for sure. This is just the data itself. Uh, and it's, um, a lot of the data isn't necessarily appropriate for the, the types of things that we were trying to do within SpaceNet. Yeah. And then, Alexei, I know, obviously, you focus on a, a variety of applications, including geospatial. But I, I'm, I'm certain that the, the hunt for high-quality labeled data sets uh, was, was a problem that you were very familiar with, especially back in, in 2015, 2016. Yeah, so then this is kind of going off of uh, Joe's point. Uh, you know, 
I think even today, if you were to try to look for the most accessible repository of geospatial labeled data, the place that you would turn to is probably going to be OpenStreetMap. Um, in order to be able to get access to just a large volume of labeled, uh, you know, mapping information. Uh, with that being said, though, uh, you know, it's not perfect. Uh, going into Joe's point, a lot of the imagery that is used to label uh, or annotate the images on OpenStreetMap is sourced across a variety of sensors. Uh, you know, some coming from Digital Globe, some coming from Microsoft. Uh, you know, there's even some of the NASA imagery as well, like so Landsat imagery that gets included in there. And so you have this kind of great variance in the types of sensors that people are looking at and people are annotating. Uh, when they annotate these sensors, uh, a pixel represents a different thing in each one of these images. And so it's hard to get pixel-perfect annotations across different imagery collects to uh, Joe's point about one-off imagery collects. Uh, and then the other challenge with it is that, you know, it's not uh, suited for all applications. If I were to do uh, autonomous driving or some type of geospatial application in the United States today, then OpenStreetMap is an amazing resource because it's actually very well maintained within uh, the US or other Western countries. But if I'm an organization that's looking to provide aid in a developing nation, then all of a sudden OpenStreetMap is actually not very helpful anymore because the information on there is just not as reliable uh, or just not up to date, right? Uh, Three-year-old data is just not very helpful when you're looking at rural areas in developing countries uh, as they tend to sprawl and have new settlements pop up. And so if you were looking at only you know, a few months or even year-old data, uh, you're really shortchanging yourself. Uh, and so with that being said, that's kind of why we, again, spouse these initiatives such as Space Tent so hard is because we want to be able to have ready access to data that can be used to train algorithms to then work in a, a multitude of uh, geolocations. And so as, as kind of everyone just said, we identifying the need for a data set is one thing, but then deciding what to build, how to build it, how to distribute it, how to update it, and how to elicit feedback from an active user community is an entirely different thing. And so once we had this idea collectively, we said, okay, how do we do this? And so the first thing that, and you're, especially in Alexei's last comment and Joe's as well, you're kind of hitting, they're both hitting on it, which is you got to pick a thing. You got to pick an, as what we would call an application to focus on that hopefully encompasses a lot of the technical challenges that people are looking to solve so they can apply those data sets or more specifically those models to a variety of other problems. And so what we decided to pick was really focus on foundational mapping. And the reason, or in common parlance, just the detection of buildings and roads and routes and other critical infrastructure, uh, in our case, from overhead imagery. So this would be uh, satellite imagery, uh, specifically from Maxar, or in the potentially from aerial data or some other uh, source. Um, and so the reason we did that is there's actually a lot of advantages um, because there are a lot of, very surprisingly, technical challenges that you would find just trying to extract building footprints. So top, what were some of those challenges with, or I should say advantages with foundational mapping? Ryan, so as you and Alexei touched on, uh, foundational mapping is a really hard problem uh, due to the data diversity and scale. As we think about uh, areas that are you know, suitable for uh, AI and machine learning, uh, you know, it's important to think about um, what you're actually trying to automate. And so 
as we looked at uh, efforts such as OpenStreetMap, um, this sort of data, of course, is critical, you know, for uh, humanitarian organizations as well as some, some commercial organizations use it around, um, you know, limited uses around foundational mapping. We looked at, you know, what are the features that um, by introducing automation we could help improve speed and scale. Uh, this is especially important when you think about applications such as uh, disaster relief type scenarios where maps need to be updated quickly, um, or uh, as um, Alexei referenced earlier, when we're thinking about parts of the world that are perhaps less mapped um, than, uh, than developed parts of the world and how we can uh, you know, use these type of algorithms to keep these maps more up to date. Going off of uh, Todd's point, there is a lot of challenges unique to working with geospatial imagery, uh, particularly even on an algorithmic uh, site. And so one of the things that are unique is going back to the uh, point, Ryan, that you made earlier, uh, when we're looking at comparing two things such as uh, cat detectors or object detectors of that fashion, uh, which is, you know, when we work with satellite imagery, we require our models to have rotational scale and translational invariance. What this means is that if I'm looking to detect buildings uh, and say I'm looking at an imagery over uh, Washington, D.C., the Pentagon uh, is considered a building. Uh, and, you know, the small, tiny house that some person in, you know, uh, the suburbs of D.C. is also considered a building, right? Uh, but how do I teach a model to be able to properly identify that this massive object at the scale of the Pentagon is technically the same class as this tiny little house relatively uh, in the suburbs of D.C., right? So this, this kind of presents a problem. How do you capture that scale, uh, that vast range in scale? And models need to be invariant to that. Same with rotational invariance, right? We don't have gravity when we look at overhead imagery. And so it's very important that models are able to capture, uh, that don't rely on a frame of reference, such as a gravitational frame of reference, to be able to infer features or uh, things about the objects they're looking at. You know, when we look at models, uh, particular computer vision models, we tend to think of them as being able to have some type of understanding of the things that they're looking at, or, you know, build up some type of representation that, the model is inferring some type of semantic representation in the images. Uh, but that is not necessarily true, right? That's a lot about is, is us reading into what the model is doing. Uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, model, de deep learning vision models in particular, uh, there's been a lot of research done lately in the theory side of it. They don't learn shape, okay? So when these models learn to pick up on, it's just textures. Uh, and in the same way that, you know, if I look at two rectangular shaped objects, uh, the only way that I'm really going to be able to tell apart if one, say, a cushion and one's a cardboard box is by looking at the actual texture of that rectangular object, right? Is it, what's the color of it? Is that it's uh, upholstered versus is it felted? You know, some things like that. And so what we have to think about is that the models, they work at that level, at that texture level. And so when they detect a shape, it's really that they're detecting a break in textures. Uh, and so again, you know, given that this is kind of like the way that these models build up their understanding, Things such as scale invariance, rotational, translation invariance become hard to capture within that framework at times. So again, this is just to highlight that working with this type of data is not only you know very important in terms of the applications, but even algorithmically, it presents a lot of very unique challenges that uh, you know certainly for us at the at the research lab, uh, you know, it gets us very excited about. And so we're going to take a quick break. So talk to you in a second. It's not as popular as K-pop but it's pretty close. The Computer Vision Foundation will be hosting the 2019 ICCB conference in Seoul, Korea this year. 
and we as the SpaceNet partners are honored to be a part of it. And the conference will be taking place uh, from October 27th to November 2nd. And some of the partners, uh, namely myself, Nick Weir, and uh, Daniel Hogan from the Cosmic team, and Alexei and Hanlon Tang from the Intel AI team will be present there. Uh, registration uh, opened up back in August and uh, runs all the way through up to the, con- up to the conference. So make sure to check out that website if you're interested in attending and hope to see you there. All right, back to the show. All right, we're back talking with all the SpaceNet partners. So we have Todd, Joe, and Alexei. We now have the application. We know there's a gap. The next question is, we want to. how do we go about building the highest quality data set? And particularly when we first started, uh, there wasn't a lot of really areas to point to in terms of sort of labeling standards, i.e. how do we actually label uh, buildings? How do we classify them to the point that Alexi brought out about just the difference in building types? And so we went about manually labeling uh, imagery. What this means is having people literally draw points, lines, and polygons uh, following instructions or a taxonomy on, on how to do that uh, on satellite images. And if you're f- still kind of familiar to this area or perhaps you don't work in it in day-to-day basis, I'll, I'll give you just a uh, a Cliff Notes version. No one has ever said, I'd rather be labeling. Right? There's not a person that's ever said that. There probably no one ever will um, because it is a lot of work and it is not just a lot of work to create the original labels. It's a lot to uh, go through the whole QAQC process and then prepare that to actually be fed into a model, which we're going to talk about. But starting at the top, Todd, walk us through just the steps we take to produce a single data set. So for a SpaceNet challenge. So what I mean by that is we have a single satellite image. We want to have X number of labels to have a representative set. Uh, start from the top. And we just went through this with SpaceNet 5, so we know this uh, intrinsically probably too well. But just walk people through all the steps that we take before we even release a data set uh, for a challenge. To give our listeners a little bit of a behind-the-scenes, I think creating the labeled training data set is one of the toughest aspects of SpaceNet. Um, This process generally takes uh, three to six months. So first, uh, the SpaceNet team uh, spends a lot of time thinking about um, what problem we're trying to solve. And so we touched on this a little bit earlier in terms of foundational mapping, but we, we ask ourselves questions, um, you know, if we can help automate a traditionally manual task, uh, in this case, uh, drawing or, or tracing uh, foundational mapping infrastructure, so building footprints and roads, what might the impact of that be, right? And so we, you know, as I alluded to earlier, the benefits um, around speed scale and scale um, and, you know, potentially accuracy as, as uh, algorithms perform better and better. And so, um, you know, from there, once we kind of think about that and frame that problem, um, we look at, you know, areas uh, where we currently have uh, data coverage and we look at what areas, um, you know, it would make sense to expand to new locations. And so as we've progressed through um, building out the SpaceNet data set, we've had a focus towards, um, and we've, we've stayed within the bounds of foundational mapping. So with building footprints and roads, um, but we've sought to expand the geographic diversity um, you know, this is considered with an eye towards helping algorithms become more generalizable. So if an algorithm is more generalizable, you could, of course, run that 
uh, more parts of the world, cover more situations. And the idea is that it would have more utility um, as you applied that to a, a real, real world type of problem. And to provide some context on that, when we say, because that's, really, that's a really important point that sometimes gets skimmed, skimmed over is when we say generalizable, what we mean is, is that you, in this context, we have uh, a model or an algorithm right, that can be run across multiple different data sets as opposed to just say, saying, let's say I wanted to build a foundational map model for Washington, D.C. And then I'd have another model that would be built uh, for another city. So one of the other uh, uh, SpaceNet cities is uh, Paris. So I'd have another model trained for that. So essentially, every time you incorporated a different geographic domain, you'd have to go through the whole process of building a model, training it, and then deploying it. The logic that Todd's highlighting here is when you have something that's generalizable, you have a single model that can be run across multiple different scenes. So in and general terms, you're being a lot more efficient. And that's something that we're trying to drive to uh, systematically uh, with our different SpaceNet challenges and why we've been adding more geographic diversity over the course of the last three years. Yeah, and so Ryan, once we um, uh, you know define the uh, the features we're looking to uh, you know extract f to create training data, uh, and then we identify um, candidate uh, areas of interest or places around the world, um, then we actually go into Maxar's imagery library. We find imagery that we think is suitable for creating this uh, labeled training data. Um, and then we provision that um, into uh, collaborative mapping tools that allow our, our team of labelers to actually go and produce that data. So, um, you know, it, one of the details I did want to touch on, though, a little bit of more behind the scenes is that, um, you know, there, there are a lot of details that are, are worked out up front um, in terms of our production team scoping the effort. So there's detailed specifications around each feature that's going to be labeled. So there's actually a whole sort of a production guide um, that goes in and, and gives, you know, uh, talks about the, the specific features and um, kind of subclasses of features, as well as gives examples of each of these. And I think, you know, kind of thinking back to the, um, the beginning of SpaceNet, uh, one of the reasons that we chose building footprints, in addition to the kind of the, the many applications that we felt that uh, automating foundation mapping would have is that we felt like um, building footprints or an understandable feature uh, that um, you know our, our challenge participants would could understand and grasp and then develop algorithms for um, you know I think the, the part that was um, early on surprising is that a f feature that's as simple as a building footprint you actually there's quite a bit of work that has to go into yes. defining what a building footprint actually is is it you know is it the uh, the actual you know we're not going and surveying these on the ground so it's what you can observe from satellite imagery um, you have other variation you know variables to take into account here shadows uh the angle of the collection uh, and uh you know in, in various roof lines and structures so um, having a good taxonomy and uh, definition up front is important uh, to creating the, the data set it gets complex quick because if you look at uh, the last uh, challenge we did spacenet 4 which was featuring uh, uh imagery over atlanta at a variety of different angles even if you're just talking about straight overhead, one of the big things we ran into was uh, occlusion or coverage of uh, building roof lines by trees. And so then you have to ask yourself, what rules am I going to put in place to highlight those occlusion by trees? Do I just say, do I not label them? Do I mark them as occluded? Do I have some threshold to say this is occluded or non-usable? Those were all the things that we had to collectively think through before we could even begin labeling. And even then, once we did the label, 
we had to go back and do a quick algorithmic check just to make sure that our logic was sound and that we didn't complete the building of the data set based on a perhaps inappropriate taxonomy. So it, it seems perhaps nuanced, but you can start generating a ton of time and labor um, if you haven't really stress test your taxonomy thoroughly. Absolutely. You know, and uh, when we think about creating the data sets, um, you know, our goals are around um, completeness of, of labeling, consistency of labeling, and then the accuracy of the labeling. So the completeness is that we want every feature that we're trying to identify, of course, to be labeled uh, in the image so that we, we don't have any, any false negatives. Uh, you know, in, in terms of the consistency, it goes back to those topology rules that you referred to so that each labeler is labeling the features in a consistent manner um, in terms of, of how it's defined in the specifications. And then the accuracy of a is, of course, that is the label actually formed correctly and that, you know, uh, is the, 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 the building, uh, you know, is the, the shape of the building correct to what one can observe. Okay. Um, in the image. So we spend a lot of time, um, you know, both in terms of the, uh, the labeling tools that we use uh, and, uh, and then running QAQC. So we have semi-automated uh, QAQC checks that we're able to run as well as then uh, visual inspection um, before each of the, the data sets are finalized. And, you know, of course, we, we strive to, to have these data sets um, be as complete and accurate as possible. Um, you know, but it's, a, it's a, as you said, it's a, it's a tough task. Uh, so, um, you know, we're certainly um, always open to, um, to ways to make the data sets better yeah and i know uh you know we'll talk about this a little bit but before each challenge we also release an algorithmic baseline part of that is to obviously help the challenge participants uh and accelerate just open source research but it also in building that algorithmic baseline it also serves as a as a test for us as, as, if you will a final qaqc to see if the data set passes muster or if there are any issues with how we chipped out the data set between train, test, and validate. So those are sort of all the steps to go in to essentially building the data set, testing it, and, and then eventually publishing it. The question is, these data sets are, are huge. Right? These are multi-terabyte files, and uh, transferring these things uh, via FTP uh, it's probably not the best the best solution. And so for us, it was there was a lot of questions about, okay, how do we distribute this in a way that makes it as easy as possible for people to consume? And obviously that's where the AWS public data program comes in. Uh, Joe, can you you hit on this a little bit, but could you describe in a little more detail about how we, the SpaceNet team, utilize the program and more specifically just What's the level of interest that we've had in the in the data set from the beginning to, to today? Yeah, so I, I think um, from from our perspective, one of the things that we're super interested in is actually seeing all the work that gets uh, that goes into making the data as useful as possible actually be used by people, right? Um, I think all of us sitting around here would agree that if nobody uses this, like yeah. all the work was for naught. So, um, I mean, I think your question is a really good one because one of the things that we've seen a lot um, is that there's a, a shift in the paradigm of how people can work with data, especially large amounts of data, which geospatial data often is. Um, and that's, you move away from taking the data to where your algorithm is and you put your algorithm, you move that to where the data is, right? And this is not a new concept. This has been going on for quite some time. Um, but the cloud sort of changes uh, what this looks like. Um, and so if you think about this, um, previously, if you wanted to work with one terabyte of data, you would have to wait to download one terabyte yeah. of data. Um, <laughs> and you would need to have one terabyte of storage. Um, and then you would also need to take the hit on the time 
that it takes you to get that, right? That's slowing down your ability to do anything. Um, but also, once you remove that data, you're duplicating it, right? And so you're also sort of losing provenance. So if any of that data gets updated, you then need to go through the process of getting it all down again, right? Um, and in different domains, um, we've definitely heard from researchers. Uh, I was talking to a researcher, and I think they were downloading something that was a couple hundred, a hundred terabytes or so. Um, and they said, we know we're not working with the latest copy of the data because we don't want to go through the pain of downloading <laughs> it again, right? Uh, and they're still going to publish the results. And that's not, like, that doesn't seem good for anyone, right? Mm -hmm. And so the model that we see gaining a lot of traction is that you make the data available in a place that's super efficiently accessible uh, in smart ways. Uh, and then people will come and work with that data uh, with whatever resources they want to bring to bear. Um, we have a whole lot of different frameworks and um, compute resources that people can do that with. Um, and so um, I think there's, but, but you still need to make the data smartly available, right? And so we've been very fortunate through the public data set program to work with a lot of customers who are making uh, petabytes of data available. Uh, and so we've seen patterns that work that have emerged over time. And so there's two of them that we've sort of taken advantage of with the SpaceNet data. Um, the first is uh, a file format, and that's called Cloud Optimized GeoTIFF. Um, so if you're working with geospatial data, especially in the cloud, you, you've probably heard of Cloud Optimized GeoTIFF. Um, there's a number of people that are sort of um, uh, going down this path now. Um, and it's, 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 your, it's your normal <laughs> GeoTIFF. Uh, there's just sort of a few standards uh, that have been adopted. And so it's not a new format. It's got a new name, but it's the same GeoTIFF format. Um, but it just has to do a little bit with sort of some internal tiling, where you put the headers, um, and some overviews. And if you sort of follow those standards, then you've sort of done something that, that can be called a cloud-optimized GeoTIFF. But at the end of the day, what this lets you do uh, is in a very efficient manner, um, when I think of a cloud-optimized format, um, I, I generally like to say that a cloud-optimized format can be defined by something that allows you to get the um, minimal amount of bytes that you don't want to get to the bytes that you do want, right? And so if you're trying to access a lot of data, but you only want pieces of that data, having something in a cloud-optimized format, and this is true for cloud-optimized GeoTIFF, generally lets you... Uh, cut down the amount of access you need to do and, of course, the amount of time because more data access means more time. So having the data available in something like cloud-optimized GeoTIFF makes it um, uh, very efficiently accessible. The other piece um, that uh, SpaceNet uses is called STACK, or Spatio-Temporal Asset Catalog, which is an evolving metadata standard. Um, it is another metadata standard. I'm sorry if some of you are <laughs> rolling your eyes at this point. Um, but it's it, I'd say it's laser-focused on what it's trying yeah. to do. Uh, it's for inde indexable, searchable um, assets. And so it's not supposed to be another really large um, uh, specification. Um, it's really trying to be extensible, but also like be pretty simple in what it's trying to do. And um, there's a whole lot of tooling that's already been built um, around uh, stack metadata. So if you have stack compliant metadata alongside your uh, assets, um, then there's a number of things like browsers, tooling, yeah. verification type tools that can work on top of that. Um, so at the end of the day, once we sort of put these things together, um, and, and the other piece I didn't really touch on uh, is sort of the, the actual technical piece, which is that this data is all sitting in S3, uh, which is an object store uh, on Amazon. Uh, this is 100% not technically correct, but you can think of it as a very large uh, file storage spot in the cloud. Um, and so when you put all of these things together, what you'll see is... Um, You've got the data sitting there uh, in an efficient cloud format along with useful metadata uh, that can be put used to right away uh, for whatever purpose. And then on, on top of that, uh, one of the things that we 
it's not directly related to this, but it's important to highlight as we talk about making data accessible, uh, high quality, and then making sure all the right tools and standards are in place uh, to facilitate research. But it's important to, to footstop here is just the licensing that goes that has gone with these data. So in order to maximize uh, usage across not just researchers, but also corporations, uh, and anyone who's followed us over the years, you, you've seen our evolution on this, but all of this BaseNet data are currently licensed under Creative Commons 4.0 share alike. And this was important because we wanted to make sure that there weren't, there weren't concerns about accessibility or usage of those data. And so as we have uh, changed the license and standardized it, we have seen uh, a big up, uh, upgrease in the usage of that. Thanks for listening uh, for today's show. Uh, we will come back with the second part of this series uh, next week, so make sure to stay tuned. Thanks, and take care. Space Club Rule number 30. Always double down. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to hear more episodes or be kept up to date when we release a new show, please make sure to subscribe to Training Data wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to find out more information and links to the different sites and data sets and presentations and all the different content that we discussed today, you can find more at cosmicworks.org, that's cosmic with a Q, spacenet.ai, and our blog, the downlink, that's also with a Q on Medium. As you're seeing here, we like the letter Q. Music was provided by the DMV Zone, and for those of you not in the DMV, that is the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, by Redline Addiction. Uh, a big thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from Inkytel's Marketing Group. Also a shout-out to Hardcast Media uh, for serving as our studio. Thanks for listening, and take care.